Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Migrant workers are the backbone of the agriculture industry. Millions of farm workers follow the harvest schedule throughout the seasons to keep fresh produce on people's tables. Many of those workers are indigenous. They work long hours and harsh conditions for pay that most Americans wouldn't tolerate. On the day to commemorate farm worker advocate Cesar Chavez, we'll discuss farm workers and the role indigenous workers play in the economy. We're back after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A bill introduced in Congress would make tribal consultation required by law. The requirements, expectations, and standard procedures for effective consultation with Tribes Act makes tribal consultation mandatory for U.S. government agencies and not just a recommended practice. Representative Raul Grijalva, chair of the House Natural Resources Committee, discussed the bill at a press conference this week in Washington, D.C. He says the time is right to seize momentum happening in the Biden administration to uphold trust responsibilities to American Indians and Alaska Natives and strengthen tribal sovereignty. Grijalva says next week, the RESPECT Act will go before the full committee for a markup. This is the first time congressional history that a bill, specific bill, requiring tribal consultation will come before the full committee. But I know this time is right. Our country has finally started to take meaningful steps in reckoning with its colonial past. Tribal consultation changes with each new presidency and federal action without tribal input often impacts tribal rights, lands, and resources. If the bill becomes law, the U.S. government could be held legally responsible for not conducting tribal consultation. Tribal leaders and directors of Native organizations are among those backing the bill. A group of Native Americans living in the United Kingdom say work continues to educate the public about Native Americans after they were instrumental in a campaign to eliminate a Native American-themed mascot and logo used by an English rugby team. In January, the Exeter Rugby Club announced it was dropping its logo and moving away from its Native American-themed brand. The move was made following a two-year review process started by fans seeking change. Leandra Neffen, who's Omaha living in England, along with some other Native Americans, joined the Change the Mascot movement. Neffen talked about the effort during a virtual event Wednesday on mascots and misappropriation of imagery, which was hosted by the Indigenous Studies Discussion Group at the University of Cambridge. Neffen says part of the group's overall goal is to tackle issues between Indigenous and British relationships. In a sense create change in the colonial empire. And that work is continuing today in terms of our involvement with the curriculum, um, teaching colonialism in UK schools. So this is a really important kind of key aspect in terms of um, us kind of creating um, or changing the narrative, you know, taking control of that definition of what is honorable to us. Tony Perry, who's Chickasaw and part of the UK native community, agrees. He says the Exeter mascot change was a victory, but the advocacy continues. For me, I feel like this is actually a step in a much bigger journey. 
Native culture is so deeply commoditized, normalized here, or, or caricatures of it. They don't see the problem with it. It just normalizes something that, you know, these are brands or these are what people do. And so I think that there's far more to do about raising awareness of Native peoples, what we our contributions into this country, because there are many that people don't know, but there are many, uh, and about us still being here. The Natives in the UK group say members have made connections with a number of educators and supporters to start teaching Indigenous history. There are also other sports teams the group would like to see end the use of Native American-themed mascots. The Exeter Rugby Club will launch its new brand this summer. Native youth in Alaska are gearing up for the 2022 Traditional Games, which will kick off this weekend in Juneau. Mid-school, high school, and older athletes from communities across the state are expected to attend. They'll compete in 10 events based on hunting and survival skills of Indigenous people. The event will be open to the public with COVID-19 precautions. The Games will also be live-streamed by Sea Alaska Heritage Institute. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian College Fund, providing millions of dollars of scholarships to Native students every year. Applications for the upcoming school year are now accepted at collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. If you've eaten breakfast or lunch today, or you have a fridge and pantry full of food, thank a farm worker. These are the hardworking folks, many of whom are indigenous, who harvest much of the food we eat every single day. Cesar Chavez was a labor rights and civil rights activist who brought attention to the inequalities, low wages, and harsh conditions of farm workers in the mid-1960s and 70s. Through protest and unionizing, Chavez helped spark a nationwide movement for improving labor conditions, protections, and better wages for farm workers. That movement continues, and its legacy is celebrated every year on this day, March 31st, Cesar Chavez Day. So today, we're going to focus on current farm workers' issues like immigration and the role of indigenous farm workers in the ag economy. We welcome you to join our discussion. Are farm worker issues a concern of yours? Do farm worker issues affect your work in agriculture? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us today from Albuquerque, New Mexico, is Chuy Martinez. He's a cultural activist and co-founder of the Recuerda a Cesar Chavez Committee. Welcome to Native America Calling, Chuy. Good morning, Sean. Uh, thank you for the invite. And, Absolutely. Uh, and thanks for that introduction. You're Perfectly, you, you right about you know. I, was <laughs> I pronounced so it well. The, yes, 
Thank you, Chewy. Thank you. Makes me feel good to hear that. Joining us from Milwaukee, Wisconsin is Matt Nelson. He's the executive director of Presente.org, an online organization advancing social justice. Welcome to Native America Calling as well, Matt. Glad to be here. And joining us from Albuquerque, New Mexico is Felipe Guevara. He's a workers' rights attorney at the New Mexico Center on Law and Poverty. Felipe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for having us. You bet. Chui, let's start off with Cesar Chavez. Is it possible to understate his role in what we know of today as the farm labor movement? Well, uh, you know, there's uh, so much, so much to, to it uh, that it, it would be it would take a couple of, uh, you know, books to really, really uh, understand all the the, the uh, things that he's done and uh, influences. Because there's a lot of, you know, the people in the history books and and also in the media always talk about the overall, the bigger part. Of, but there was a lot of small, little. Uh, things that he went through that people, you know, that aren't covered. Some of us that, had, that were, that grew up in the, uh, in the fields and that grew up in the union, especially, uh, we know firsthand, you know, a lot of the things that, uh, that happened during those times, but you're right. It's, it's almost, uh, impossible to, uh, equate, you know, everything uh-huh. in, in, uh, in one conversation, even. Chewy, when did Cesar Chavez become an activist for farm workers' rights? Well, this was after he uh, he got back from the uh, uh, or the service. You know, he he was uh, just in the service and also seen the uh, you know how bad it was uh, in his own state in Arizona. That's when he started. Um, um, organizing or seeing, you know, the need for organizations, and they had to move to uh, California because of the same thing, the problems with poverty. And we have to remember, he grew up, you know, close to the WPA or the, the work on poverty and and the uh, and during the uh, depression. So it was a lot of um, even worse than that is now. Uh, especially in the fields and I have to remember around those times uh, it was also you know after the uh, Bracero program uh, it was uh, a, a big gap that was that needed to be uh, filled in in the uh, agricultural industry so uh, so he um, that's that's how he started um, and then later okay. on was joined by by Dolores Huerta who we know it was equal to the Lord, I mean, to Cesar. Certainly, certainly. Uh, and Chewie, this topic hits close to home because you were a far, farm worker yourself. What is that life like? Well, it, you know, uh, we were migrant workers, which is different than a farm workers. You know, it's farm workers that lived on that little town and they go and work on the farm, come back home. Migrant workers, we follow the crops. In fact, you were talking uh, uh, about uh, Wisconsin. We spent some time in Wisconsin uh, when when I was young, and then later on in my life, in my organizing uh, days, I spent some time in Wisconsin. Uh, farm work 
was all over. It's all over the country, you know, from California all the way to you know Florida, you know Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota. I mean, you name it. There's there's uh, farm workers everywhere, but uh, I I was part of the migrant worker. Uh, families. Migrant worker. Okay. So your family, even from the time you were a young child, I presume, would would follow the seasons, would follow the crops. What parts of the country did you live in and work in? Well, uh, uh, South Texas, West Texas, uh, New Mexico, Arizona, California, uh, the um, Idaho, uh, the, uh, uh, we were in Wisconsin, Illinois, Minnesota, Florida. <laughs> I mean, wow, <laughs> pretty much all over the map. Seven places, seven places that I can remember, you know, because uh, <laughs> you know there's different seasons, different crops, uh, but a lot of lot of times, you know, like a lot of the uh, Chicano people that live in, in Wisconsin, you know, uh, helping, I mean, talking about Wisconsin, they got stuck sometimes when you have, you know, like a bad season. And there was no work, so you had to go and work in the factories. <laughs> so, oh, uh, wow. so a lot of them, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of movement. Uh, and this, this, this were you know people. They were like from West Texas, from the Rio Grande Valley, and, and all those, or California, or even here in New Mexico. And was the work hard and and, and long hours, like we we often see it portrayed and. On, like documentaries and things like that. Is, are those representations accurate for, for how hard it is? It is very hard. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, when I was a child, of course, I, I, it was in, run the sixties, uh, 1960s when the, uh, labor, uh, the child labor laws had just been, uh, installed and, uh, and then, um, but we still had to work, you know, we, we will go out to, 10 a.m. Uh, I mean, at uh, 5 5 a.m. and then get out get out of there by 10 a.m. because of the inspectors, you know, the inspectors always had like this little arrangement with the uh, with the uh, uh, farmers that they will show up at a certain time, so they would make sure that there was no kids around that time. Uh, and then if okay. you if you were lucky and you lived close to a little town, then you could go to school. And uh, and there was another hassle because you know in order for you to go to school you have to be a resident, so you had to ask for a waiver to go into um, a, uh, a public school. So most of the school that we uh, attended was either uh, religious instruction, you know, when the the Presbyterian church will show up and had like a little revival tent. Sometimes on those migrant camps, you know, if you if you feel lived in a migrant camp, uh, we have to remember that a lot of the fields in the in, in the uh, agricultural fields are, are far from the little towns. So unless you lived, like I said, in uh, close to a town, and you could go to school and be a little more comfortable, go to the stores and buy you know groceries, all that. Otherwise, you had to rely a lot on the church for example um sometimes the presbyterian church sometimes the mormons sometimes the uh you know a catholic church or you know it was it depends uh depend on on who got there first you know uh-huh 
And Chewy, I think people often think of farm workers or migrant workers as undocumented people from from Mexico and other Latin American countries. But what is the reality? What what is where does a what is the citizenship status of a, of a typical migrant worker in your day or even today? Yeah, no, there's you know a lot of uh, Americans, you know, American-born uh, uh, people, especially uh, from the uh, from the South Texas, uh, you know, along the border, uh, a lot of those were uh, American-born uh, uh, farm workers. And okay. Chewy, uh, any? And, I'm sorry. Any? Uh, any gauge on how many of those those farm workers and migrants are indigenous? Well, there there was a uh, communities, uh, for example, in Arizona, where a lot of the uh, indigenous farm workers worked alongside the. Uh, uh, Hispanic uh, or, or Mexican workers. It, it, uh, it'll depend, but you know, when talking about different groups, of course, the Filipino communities in California, especially, uh, were, were huge. You know, they're the ones who actually started uh, the first uh, strike right before even the, the uh, Cesar Chavez movement. So the Filipino group, uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, Filipinos and a lot, a lot of uh, native uh, communities uh, from around California, from you know, from those uh, in Arizona. I, I remember around Guadalupe, Arizona, where there was a lot of um, uh, okay. Guadalupe, you know, Arizona. native mm-hmm. indigenous folks and, and native people from that area. We are are listening to Chuy Martinez today. He is a cultural activist and uh, very active in the farm labor movement. Folks, if you have a question or a comment, please give us a call. We are honoring the legacy of Cesar Chavez and talking about other issues related to farm worker rights on Native America calling today. The number 1-800-996-2848. We'll be back right after this short break. Laughing is a way of making the day seem better and Native humor has a punchline all its own. On April Fool's Day, we'll check in with Native comedians about what makes them laugh. We'll bring you in on the joke and hear about the best kind of foolishness on the next Native America Calling. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian country has put its trust in Amerind. Providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D dot com. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Today is Cesar Chavez Day, and we're taking this hour about farm workers' rights, talking about farm workers' rights. If you're a farmer, how important are farm workers' rights to you and your business? And if you're a farm worker, we want to hear from you. What kinds of improvements would you like to see on the farm and in policy? Please join the conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. 
Let's bring our second guest into the conversation now, Matt Nelson. And, and Matt, we just heard Chewy give a really fascinating overview of what life looks like for a, a migrant farm worker in the United States. And I'm curious, Matt, why are a majority of farm workers, migrant workers from other countries like Mexico and other Latin countries? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in listening, um, I often am reminded that a lot of the migrant workers would would go from even places like from Albuquerque to northern Wisconsin and then, yes, end up in Milwaukee. And now Milwaukee has, you know, nearly 100,000 um, Latinx, mostly uh, Mexican origin and Puerto Rican folks who live in the city. And that's sort of um, a product of, you know, almost a century of of workers coming to Wisconsin and then, you know, like my colleague and mentioned, you know, settling in places like Milwaukee. I think um, it is, uh, but its roots, you know, and you had played in the intro, um, a Rage Against the Machine song. And as many people may know, Rage Against the Machine sort of got their start talking about NAFTA. And NAFTA, the beginning of the 90s neoliberal economic policy, is what created a lot of the the crisis that Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, and others organized around. Um, you know, as Cesar Chavez says, you know, they were organizing for dignity and strength from the depths of despair. And what created the depths of despair were these economic policies like, like NAFTA that essentially gave all the power to the big ag and fossil fuel corporations that essentially were able to exploit millions and millions of workers, both in the United States and um, in Mexico and other places. So it created this catastrophe that then um, everyday uh, you know, people just trying to get by were subjected to. And I think that and then the other major, major policy that has really impacted, you know, what you mentioned is the um, IRA IRA Act. Sort of in 1996, again, a, uh, a Clinton era policy that essentially created this paradigm around immigration, uh, this ideology of punishment, restriction, and exclusion. Um, and so the combination between a uh, uh, an iron fist of 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 criminalizing anyone who's a migrant with the um, giving corporations sort of free reign to exploit workers through mm -hmm. NAFTA was this this horrible um, combination that um, that we've been continuing to organize to today and I, and I will say that the you know in in terms of identifying this day and of because of what I just mentioned, you know, Wisconsin was one of the first states to have a Cesare Chavez Day. And yesterday I was on Cesare Chavez Boulevard that connects two parts of, of what is a still very highly segregated city. But, you know, the, the farm workers taught us that you need solidarity and that solidarity takes love, it takes love of our people, takes love of the land, and it takes taking care of each other. And so 
there has been long-time connections between migrants and various Latinx communities and indigenous communities who have for decades now worked together to protect the land and to protect each other. And this day is, is about that and in sharp okay. contrast to what's currently happening. Sure, sure. And um, you uh, certainly have a, a strong knowledge of uh, early 90s alternative rock trivia, Matt. So I've got to give you props for that with the Rage Against the Machine reference there. And, and Matt, I, I want to ask you, do you think the average American really understands just what it takes to bring fresh lettuce and vegetables to their dinner table every evening? You know, I do think that there's growing consciousness around uh, around what an essential worker is and what that means. You know, even through the pandemic, you know, we now see our our grocery store workers. We see our 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 people who are are actually harvesting the food and taking care of the land, and we we do see that more. And I think that can create a cultural shift. And we also have seen what. Um, what working people endure on a daily basis. And I think there's also growing solidarity amongst um, people recognizing that, that farm work is very difficult and incredibly necessary as is healthcare work. And so I do think we're at, we have an opportunity for deeper understanding and solidarity, which, which builds cultural change, but it only happens, you know, it only happens through organizing. And I think like the more we, you know, and the more programs like this and the more we just begin to talk to about and with other people's experience, the more we can um, we can change the narrative and change the culture. Now, Matt, because many of these workers come from out of country, what labor laws are they exempt from that would apply to ordinary American citizens if they were to do this type of work? You know, I, I think there's a couple stories that that I think illustrate this. Um, you know, when a a you know when a um, uh, auto parts factory was closing down in Milwaukee, you know, I was working with the, some of the last employees, and one of their jobs was to ship um, metal manufacturing metal um, working equipment to Mexico because that's where they were moving. And their orders on the worksheet was remove all safety guards from the equipment before shipping. So essentially when, again, this is same NAFTA, you know, paradigm, when the equipment went from Milwaukee to um, central Mexico, it was the same equipment, same people, you know, like similar um, working class people operating it, but it didn't have any of the safety equipment. You know, the, the second story is, is in terms of like factory work in Milwaukee, you know, it, it was, you know, the, it was the same station, the same hard station in a meat packing plant, but it just has shifted between um, different uh, exploited workers. So that, that same dangerous station in a meat packing plant that a black worker operated uh, then became a Mexican worker then became a Hmong worker um, and then became 
again, like another 90s program with welfare reform, became someone who was in a uh, workfare program, essentially forced to work in harsh environments in order to keep what was left of the social safety net. Mm -hmm. Well, let's bring another guest into the conversation now, Felipe, and he is a workers' rights attorney in, in New Mexico at the Center on law and poverty. And, and Felipe, we just heard Matt describe some of these safety violations that are um, that take place in some of these working conditions. And can you elaborate more, Felipe, in terms of what are some of these existing conditions that contemporary farm workers are exposed to? Yeah, I think there's many different conditions that farm workers are exposed to. And, and as you've mentioned, and, and the other guests on the show today have mentioned, you know, farm workers are extremely important to our economy. They they are important to ensuring that there's food on our table, and they're some of the more essential workers that we have in this country. And so the fact that they deal with so many different types of safety issues, um, oftentimes issues that aren't necessarily being too paid attention to, um, is, is, is a huge problem. I think some of the issues that right now there are campaigns around and that there, um, there, that there are advocates working on are things like heat stress. You know, many farm workers are working in states that every day are getting hotter and hotter, such as Arizona, Cal parts of California, even here in New Mexico. You know, the climate change is really affecting um, the way that the seasons of each of these states and many of the effects is that it's getting hotter. And these workers are out there sometimes over 13 hours a day working in heat. Now, there are regulations in place, both at the federal and sometimes even at the state level, that require water and, and shade and all these things. But oftentimes, states are under-resourced to be able to ensure that those protections are actually occurring on every in every field that that has farm workers, and so oftentimes many individuals are laboring um, in in extremely hot conditions. And there are reports, you know, there isn't a national organization that that tracks heat stress deaths, and and there are reports of many uh, of deaths increasing over the past couple of years because of that. And then the nature of the work is also very dangerous. You know, you have individuals who on a consistent basis are kneeling um, to pick crops or who are bending over to, to ensure that they can get the crop to put it in their bucket. Um, and that creates all types of issues as more and more time passes and as the worker continues to do that, that type of work that requires them to be in awkward positions where it puts stress on their back, on their knees. Um, so many farm workers are experiencing just health issues because of the continue, the routine nature of their work that involves their body being put putting a lot of stress on their bodies. Mm -hmm. um, many of these workers are often um, 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 dealing with major health issues towards the end of their lives because they also don't have the necessary health care usually to be able to address those problems. And so, you know, the nature of the work, heat, um, and then you have other problems like wage theft and things like that that are affecting the community and keeping okay. many people within the community at poverty. And yeah, and Felipe, I wanted to, to ask you about wages. What what are these workers being paid? 
So it varies. Um, and, and I think the first thing to note here, you know, what, one question you asked was, what are the types of rights that workers don't have? And one, two of the major rights that agricultural workers at the federal level, you know, and this may be different depending on the states that the workers are in, but at the federal level, agricultural workers do not, in, in some instances, do not have the right to the minimum wage, which is currently seven twenty-five an hour at the federal level, and they don't have the right to the overtime. Now, those exclusions persist like states in states like New Mexico. Um, and so many times these individuals are making way below the minimum wage um, because of these exclusions that allow employers to pay them that. Here in New Mexico, for instance, we're at 11.50 an hour, but we consistently are hearing from workers that they're not even making that. Another problem here is that many of these workers are paid in a piece rate fashion. And so rather than being paid per hour, like most low-wage workers or workers working in, in, in low-wage industries, um, these individuals are being paid by a bucket, right? And so they have to pick a certain amount of buckets to eventually get to that minimum wage. Um, if they are not, or if they're new to the industry, they could pick maybe five buckets. Some buckets we're hearing, for instance, chili buckets here in New Mexico can be paid at even as low as $2 um, a bucket. And so if you're not picking that many uh, uh, um, during the day, then you're really not making that much money. On okay. average, we're also hearing that you know workers make about $12,000 to $15,000 a year. Um, and these are workers with families and children they're trying to provide for. Okay. So, Felipe, I, I think what's really baffling me about this conversation um, and the question I, I have is, you know, why these workers aren't enjoying this trend toward higher wages in the United States? Because we have so much talk now about livable wages. We see more cities and states increasing the minimum wage. I mean, there's a target not too far from my house where starting wages are between 15 and $24 an hour. And yet we have this labor economy, this farm labor economy that seems like it's forever locked into this early 20th century model that honestly sounds a lot like indentured servitude. I mean, how can that exist in a country that prides itself on equality? Yeah, you know, I think that has a lot to do with the history of agriculture in this country. As as we all know, you know, agriculture was sustained for many centuries in this country by slavery. Um, when slavery was abolished and during the 1930s, when there all the social um, all the social uh, uh, bills that FDR and several social democrats during that time were putting forward were coming to there there had to be compromises with a lot of the southern democrats who were coming out of slavery and who were were now sort of part in, a part of the government and and were a part of ensuring that agricultural workers um would have you know certain rights etc and and that resulted in sort of these compromises where agriculture workers were left out because the majority of those workers were black at the time and because it was dominated by black workers southern democrats wanted to exclude them from minimum wage from overtime from health and safety protections and they successfully did that and for years you know the the, the community has obviously obviously shifted there continues to be a lot of black agricultural workers but there are it's also now just predominantly um, Latino and has shifted in that direction. And, and those 
compromises that happened many years ago that were based in racism um, continue to exist simply because the community continues to be a very marginalized community. And, you know, there's other factors such as, you know, large agriculture, agribusiness interests within politics that inform the way that that these laws change. Um, And it's in their interest to keep these rates down because the industry itself struggles. And so they, they do their best to keep the money they have to pay their workers as low as possible. I see. According to the website inequality.org, there are between 2.5 and 3 million agricultural workers in the United States. Migrant farm workers account for an estimated 75% of these, and 50% of migrant farm workers are undocumented. Many live in this country at risk of deportation, in substandard housing conditions, and in extreme poverty. According to his bio on the website, History.com, Cesar Chavez died in his sleep on April 23, 1993, at the age of 66. The following year, President Bill Clinton awarded him a posthumous Presidential Medal of Freedom. And in a sign of the labor leader's enduring influence, Barack Obama borrowed a Chavez slogan, Si Sue Pueda, or Yes We Can, during his successful presidential campaign in 2008. Well, folks, this is a really fascinating discussion, uh, a little bit difficult to listen to at times, the severity of some of these issues that we're learning about. But if you have a question or a comment, please do not hesitate to give us a call. Again, we are acknowledging and celebrating the legacy of the great workers' rights leader, Cesar Chavez, and the number to call, 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. Uh, you can also reach us out to us on online at www.nativeamericacalling.com. Lots of different ways to connect with us here today on Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce, and we're going to be back right after this short break. Smoking gave me COPD, which makes it harder and harder for me to breathe. I have a tip for you. If your doctor gives you five years to live, spend it talking with your grandchildren. Explain to them that your grandpa's not going to be around anymore to share his wisdom and his love. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. I'm running out of time. COPD makes it harder and harder to breathe and can cause death. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about farm workers' rights today on Cesar Chavez Day. There's still time to join our conversation, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And we have a caller on the line right now, Regina. She's listening in Pine Ridge, South Dakota on Keeley. Regina, you're on Native America Calling. Okay, I just wanted to mention that my family and I and several other families from the Pine Ridge Reservation worked in the bean fields in Colorado around Port Lupton in that area. And there wasn't a salary. We were paid by what we picked and they waited and that's uh, whatever, however much it paid. I mean, you know, that's paid by weight. And then years later, when uh, Cesar Chavez started the farm workers, 
Union, then I was going to school at Boulder in Colorado, a college there. So I joined the Chicano organization, and uh, we boycotted iceberg lettuce and grapes. So I was part of that resistance, too. And uh, I just wanted to mention that that's the kind of jobs that we were able to get from the reservations by going to other areas, like picking potatoes in Hemingford and cutting sugar beets in Nebraska also. So we met a lot of Mexican people who were migrants, and uh, I cheered for them when Theodore Shadbeth started uh, viewing the whole situation and how there was no porta potties out there. And we worked all day from the from real early in the morning all day just to make sure we made some spending money and so forth, and we camped there. Re- Regina, how long did your family live this migrant worker lifestyle? Uh, we only went that one summer, and I think I was about 11 or 12 years old at the time, and we didn't go back. But we, we were ranchers. We had cattle, and we had horses. And it was one of those times, I don't know whether there was a drought or not, and, and the same kind of drought that we're having right now with the ranch and ranchers having a hard time. So we had to look outside uh, the reservation, which I call the box. We had to look outside the box and see what we could do. But in the fall of the year, for sure, we always went back to Hemingford until they got machines that took the place of labor. And uh, so we have approximately 95% unemployment here right on Crown Ridge Reservation itself. And to get a job, you had to move to Rapid and so forth. And now we're out uh, fighting the racism over there. But I really appreciate uh, you bringing up the farm labors of uh, the United States because... The migrant workers, I know they travel along the West Coast and to the different apple orchards and so forth and pick the apples. Mm -hmm. But like you said, nobody ever questioned how this food got on your table. And Mm -hmm. I know there's a lot of people still working in the fields, harvesting by hand. And uh, thanks for bringing that up. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely, Regina. And and thank you so much for calling in and sharing some of your family's history as well. That's really, really interesting to learn about. We have another guest that's called in and and she's based in Bellingham, Washington, Rosalinda Guillen. Uh, She's the founder of Community to Community, a food justice women-led advocacy group. Rosalinda, welcome to the show. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Absolutely. So tell us more about your organization, Community to Community. So our organization our organization was actually directly inspired by Cesar Chavez. So I'm 70 years old. Um, didn't really ever find out about Cesar Chavez until I was in my late 30s. And I'm a farm worker from Washington State. So I grew up working in the fields as did my family. I'm the oldest of eight, and every one of us worked in the fields here in Skagit County um, during the 60s and 70s. That was uh, what we did. My father was a migrant worker. Listening to these stories is, is amazing. It's like it's my father's story. He was a migrant worker in the United States all the way. You know, he worked in New York and Mississippi. He worked in Wisconsin, Minnesota. He talked a lot about Minnesota. Um, you know, of course, we also are from the... Texas area, or my father's family was, and he brought us here to Washington State when I was 10 years old. 
So our organization comes from really when I found out about Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers, I was absolutely flabbergasted that something like that had existed during the whole time that I was a farm worker in Washington state. As you know, we're like in the state of Washington in the westernmost upper northernmost corner of the country and Whatcom County and Skagit County are at the very tip of um, what the United States. And so we never really heard about the farm worker movement in California. Um, we were so busy working all the time. So I want to say that our organization's organizing model and its values and principles are very much based on Cesar Chavez and his organizing model. We still carry out the um, house meetings. Um, in fact, we're planning a march for May 1st to honor Cesar Chavez, but also to honor the founding of a union in Washington state, Familias Unidas por la Justicia, which was, again, inspired by the work that Cesar Chavez did in California. Um, we've already waged two boycotts in Washington state, the Chateau St. Michel boycott and the Driscoll Berries boycotts. And these boycotts have been directly influenced by Cesar Chavez. So I want to say that I want to thank you for having this radio show honoring um, our hero and our mentor, really, even though we've never met him. Um, so community to community development is founded by farm workers, led by farm workers with a really broad range of white ally support. And we work with Filipino activists here in Washington state also and to try to bring about farm worker rights across the state in Washington. We just passed, uh, supported Familias Unidas in passing an overtime bill in Washington state. So now in Washington state in 2024, farm workers will be earning overtime after 40 hours an hour. So, you know, there have been a lot of changes in Washington state since the founding of this union in community to community development is a support network for any farm worker in Washington state that is courageous enough to speak out and begin organizing. So um, we definitely believe in the CISA Puede attitude and we continue to do that work. Well, Rosalind, thank you so much for calling in and sharing those wins that you described. Uh, you mentioned the boycotts and uh, also these wage increases. And I think that's, that's really a, a burning question I'm getting from today's conversation is, um, you know, we've heard from from our, our guests, Chewy and Matt and Felipe, as well as another caller, Regina, who describes just some really brutal working conditions in these low wages. So I'm interested in terms of, you know, these wins that you've had there in Washington state. And what is it going to take to just um, have more progress like this with regard to improved working conditions and higher wages for farm workers that feed all of us Americans. What are your thoughts on that, Rosalinda? I think what it takes, because it's what we've used here, is the Cesar Chavez model of organizing. It is that mobilizing that Cesar Puede attitude. It's been a lot of strikes, direct actions, boycotting, but also educating the community, following Cesar Chavez's lead in how he did it, how the farm workers in California did it, cross-sectional um, solidarity with other workers, um, going to the faith community and asking for their support. But most importantly, the farm workers themselves know what they need and how to get it, and we have to support, listen to them and support them. Because of Familias Unidas por la Justicia, in Washington State now, 
you know, the, the minimum wage has gone up to almost, four, I think it is $14 an hour now, but um, most every farm, if they want to compete for labor in Washington state, you got to start talking 15 and $16 an hour. We're setting a trend and farm workers are following that trend about what is a minimum wage. But I wanted to address the piece rate wage. Um, it was mentioned before. That mm-hmm. is, in my opinion, um, in agri- the agricultural industry in the country follows a white supremacist agenda of keeping the labor in agriculture as close to slavery as they can get it. And the piece rate wage, that process that has been instituted and normalized is one way to do it. Um, people should realize that the average lifespan of a farm worker today is 49, 49. In the, with the COVID pandemic, I think it was probably lowered back down to 47. We're just recovering from the COVID pandemic. But the piece rate wage process forces a worker to push their physical bodies beyond endurance sometimes in order to eat, earn right. just even minimum wage. And I think that that is a, a, an atrocity in this country that has to stop. Farm workers deserve, in my opinion, and I say this loud and clear to everybody that will listen, the minimum wage for a skilled farm worker in the United States today should be at least 30 to $35 an hour. That is what our labor is worth in, you know, just in, in entering into the industry. The skill to prune trees right, and right. pick berries. And- and Rosalind, I, I want to ask you because that seems like a fair a fair wage to me as well. But why is it as as, as Americans that that we're not okay with that? Is it because we just don't want to pay, pay those higher prices at the supermarket? Is it because of this oppressive uh, servitudinal model that you describe? Why is it that as, as Americans we can't pay these people what their time and their effort is worth? I think it was mentioned before. Also, it, it's this white supremacist attitude that refuses to even recognize that farm workers exist and are part of the production line of the food system. We're invisible. And this is why this radio show is so important, because that is what keeps the wages down in agriculture, the failure of the consumer to see the faces and hear the voices of farm workers, even in their own community. And I think it's really important. It keeps it down, but also the Let's be honest, the agricultural industry has huge political power and a huge dollar power in the marketplace. They work to keep our voices down at a political level. That is why the, the laws and the rules and the, the benefits to farm workers are not present because they fight against it every time farm workers try to improve it. They fought it with the United Farm Workers. They never stopped attacking the union and the benefits that Cesar Chavez really wanted to see for us. So that is one way, the political power of the agricultural industry and the incredible profit that they make off of us, and they want to keep making that profit. But the other issue is that consumers really want cheap food. And, you know, what we say at our organization is if you're buying cheap food, you're buying food that's tainted with suffering and the, the, the suffering of children and families and poverty, because that price goes down on the back of our workers. It goes down mm-hmm. on the back of farm workers and other food system workers. And it, it's a shame. And I think if, if consumers really saw and heard more closely and more often the voices and the faces of farm workers, which is what Caesar did, 
That is what he did. He sent farm workers out to um, introduce themselves. They would willingly pay for, you know, a higher price for food. That's what I believe, because I think in the end, the majority of Americans are good people that want to do the right thing. And so I think, you know, whenever we boycott, people hear the question. I mean, they see their faces and they support it. They pay attention. They pay attention. Yes. Right, right. Rosalinda, again, thank you so much for for joining the show, calling in, and and really, really tremendous insights, and and you've added so much value to our discussion today. And Chewy, I want to ask you, Chewy, um, Cesar Chavez, we're honoring him today, and and he wants um, one of his very first hunger strike. He wanted several hunger strikes to... Uh, gain gain, uh, gain awareness and to advocate on behalf of farm workers during his lifetime. But after his first hunger strike, there was a speech. Apparently, he was too weak to read to, to read the speech himself or to say it himself. But he had somebody read it on his behalf. And there was a quote, and I'm going to read it to you now, Chewy. To be a man is to suffer for others. God help us be men. Chewy, do you think those words ring true today? Yes, they, uh, they do. Uh, along with a lot of other. Uh, phrases that he uh, quoted uh, around that time. But we have to remember that, you know, Cesar was uh, a a very unique man. You know, one thing is to be popular, another is to be unique. And he was unique in all aspects of life. Uh, He was, uh, but one thing that we're forgetting is that he wouldn't have done everything he did without the help of so many people surrounding him, especially his the co-founder Dolores Huerta, which is we're so honored to uh, for her to be uh, part of New Mexico. And in fact, she's been coming for the last ten years uh, to honor uh, the Cesar uh, Chavez Day. Uh, we uh, one of the things that we're uh, doing here is awareness awareness among uh, school children. We established what we call the uh, the Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta first avenue uh, and and uh, and byway in in the United States. You know, at, uh, at Cesar Chavez Avenue ends uh, at right at the National Hispanic Cultural Center here in Albuquerque, and then Dolores Huerta continues all the way to the end of the uh, uh, the end of the. Uh, uh, what it was called Rich Avenue, and now it's Dolores Huerta Avenue. So those kind of things, we we try to give them equal uh, equal uh, representation. Because you know, another thing that uh, I heard is that you know everybody um, attributes that si se puede uh, a, a code, and, and it was actually Dolores who who uh, it was came Dolores. Up with that. Okay, right. thank Chewy, thank you for that clarification. And again, Del- Dolores Huerta, born in 1930 in northern New Mexico and still living today, still advocating, still organizing, still being a champion for workers' rights. We've reached the end of the hour, and I would like to say thank you to our guests, Chewy Martinez, Matt Nelson, Rosalinda Guillen, and Felipe Guevara for a timely conversation on contemporary farm labor issues and the legacy of Cesar Chavez. Join us tomorrow for our April Fool's Day show, looking at what there is to laugh about in Native America. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening.
support by the Native American Disability Law Center. The Native American Disability Law Center advocates for the rights of Native Americans with disabilities, so those rights are enforced, strengthened, and brought into harmony with their communities. There is no charge for this help. More info at 800-862-7271 or nativedisabilitylaw.org who support this show. SA, support your health care team enrolled in health care coverage today. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Elakwa. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.